And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Uh, We'll be diving into Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our study of the greatest sermon of all time, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Well, I am sure that all moms would agree that having kids has radically changed your life. (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Having kids has radically changed your schedules. It's changed your view of success. It's changed your priorities. It's also changed your ability to multitask effectively. Sometimes I look at my wife and see all the things she juggles at the same time. Wow. She used to be a good multitasker before she had kids, and her ability to do that has now just exponentially increased since we've had our four kids. So moms, hats off to you. Uh, You've adapted to those changes your kids have brought into your family. Well, last week as I was online, I, I came across some memes. Evidently, there are some moms out there that also think having kids has changed their looks. And so these memes that hundreds of thousands of moms out there have said, yep, that describes it so well. These memes have exploded and gone viral online. Let me show you a couple of these right now. Here, first of all, many moms think this is what they looked like before they had kids (laughs) and after they had kids. Many of you moms maybe can relate with that. I think you're beautiful, but many moms look at themselves and they see quite a difference. Now, other moms look at this picture, this meme, and say, no, that doesn't quite describe the the difference I feel in the way that I look when I look in the mirror. It's more like that lady from Titanic. It's more like this. Before kids and two years after kids. (laughs) That's terrible. Well, it's not just looks. Many moms actually are under the impression that they don't sleep as well as they did before they had kids. Many moms have gravitated to this meme. Here's how they slept before having kids, just like Sleeping Beauty and after kids. (laughs) That that is not a good picture there. Other moms say, you know what? Vacations are a lot different than they used to be. And this meme has become very popular online. Vacations before kids And vacations after kids. Now, I look at that second picture. Whichever mom packed the top of that car, I just want to give her a high five. That is the most amazing packing job on a compact car I've ever seen. So kudos to you, mom. (laughs) Great job preparing your kids for those vacations. Well, uh, I think we'd all agree that kids radically transform our lives. They change our lives in a lot of ways. They, they change fundamentally the way that our family life looks and operates. But this morning as we turn to Matthew chapter 6, I'd like you to internalize this truth, a truth about fasting, and it goes like this. Fasting is a gift from God that works hand-in-hand hand with prayer to change our spiritual lives Fasting is a necessary part of a radical reorientation toward God. There's no doubt about it that kids change our family life. But this morning we're going to see that fasting and prayer can radically transform our spiritual lives. I'm calling today's message Fasting and Prayer. 
fasting and prayer. So we're in Matthew chapter 6, and I'll start reading in verse 16, picking up right after where we left off last week as we finished our study on prayer. Matthew 6, starting in verse 16. Jesus said, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, in the second half of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave us six examples of how he is raising the bar much higher than the Pharisees and teachers of the law had ever raised it when it came to our moral behavior and our moral center in our hearts. Jesus doesn't just deal with outward sin. He deals with the root of our sin, sin inside our hearts. He teaches us that murder doesn't begin in the hands. He teaches us that murder actually begins in the heart with anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. The Pharisees taught their followers uh, do not commit adultery, but Jesus goes to the root of the matter. He goes to the heart of the matter and says adultery actually begins with lust in the heart. Adultery doesn't begin in the bedroom. It begins in the heart. The Pharisees taught their followers, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus raises the bar and said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, why would we do that? Well, because God's love is unconditional. So ours must also be unconditional. Any fool can love those who are nice to him and gives him what makes his life easier. But it takes a follower of Christ to truly love unconditionally someone who spits in your face. Jesus says, love and pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. Jesus finished chapter 5 by summarizing it this way in verse 44. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And remember, we looked at that verse and spent a few minutes on it. That word perfect comes from a Greek word, teleos. And that word teleos literally means mature and grown up. So Jesus finishes that great first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, by saying, grow up, followers of Christ. Grow up. Don't just act mature on the outside. Be mature on the inside. Make sure that as time goes by, your heart becomes more and more like the heart of Christ. And then Jesus turns the corner into chapter 6 where we've spent our time over the past month. And in the first half of chapter 6, Jesus shares three examples of religious acts, three acts of righteousness as he calls them, that every Pharisee and teacher of the law in his day carried out every single week. Number one was giving to the poor. Number two was prayer. Number three was fasting. Every one of those Pharisees carried those out faithfully every week. And every follower of Christ today should carry out all three of those religious acts. There's no excuse for not giving to the poor, not praying, or not fasting. So the problem wasn't in Jesus' day that the Pharisees were doing those three things. Doing those three things were very good. 
The problem wasn't what they did with those religious acts. The problem was how they did them and even more specifically why they carried out those religious acts. I want you to see the repetition of some key phrases that Jesus uses in these first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Notice what he says in in verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. How about verse 2? So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. How about verse 5? And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing on the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. You see the repetition? Seen by men, honored by men. He doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. So Jesus emphasizes and reemphasizes this important point throughout these 16 verses in Matthew chapter 6. It goes like this. Hypocrites do the right things for the wrong reasons. Instead of doing the right things to be seen and honored by God, they do them to be seen and honored by men. In their hearts, they are people pleasers, not God pleasers. So the problem was not what they did. It was a good thing that they gave to the poor and fasted and prayed. But the way that they did them, the why of why they did those things was completely hypocritical. And Jesus would say the same to many followers of his today. It's not so much what they're doing. The religious acts are good, but the motivation behind them is completely wrong. Jesus emphasizes this over and over again, that they're doing what they do to be seen by men, and that's the wrong way to carry out those acts of righteousness. Well, I want you to notice the repetition also of the word reward through these same verses. Verse 1, if you do your acts of righteousness before men, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2, I tell you the truth, the hypocrites have received their reward in full. Verse 4, your giving should be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, hypocrites love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And then finally, verse 6, Pray to your father who is unseen, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus stops talking about reward there, doesn't he? Well, actually he doesn't. How about verse 16? Hypocrites disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And then finally, verse 18, I will not, uh, it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think that Jesus might be trying to tell us something. How about you? I, I, I think he's trying to tell us something and I think I'd boil it down to this. Every act of righteousness brings a reward. You with me so far? Every act of righteousness brings a reward. But the motives of our heart determine what kind of reward it's going to be. God gives each of us a choice. Either choose man's temporary rewards today, i.e. praise and admiration, or choose God's eternal rewards tomorrow, such as him saying to you on judgment day, well done good and faithful 
servant. If you carry out these acts of righteousness, they will bring a reward. The question is, what kind of reward will it be? And who will it be from? Well, if you win God's praise, you will lose man's praise. It's as simple as that. But if you win man's praise, you will lose God's praise. If you carry out those acts of righteousness to get the attaboys from other people around you who see you doing them, you will completely forfeit your reward from God. We could say it this way. A hypocrite is a man or woman who claims to follow God, but actually follows popularity. As he pursues short-term praise from men, he loses long-term praise from the God he claims to live for. Do you see how we can pull that from all three of these religious acts that Jesus has been addressing here in Matthew chapter 6? He's been telling us over and over again, there is reward for those who carry out these acts of righteousness, but you will not get rewards from both God and man. You'll only get it from one or the other. Which one are you going to choose to get your reward from? Jesus urges us to choose wisely. Now, let's take a closer look at fasting and see how it fits into Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, let's start by answering a few basic questions. Question number one, what is fasting? Okay, what is fasting? Well, the word fast is a translation of the Greek word nestleia. The first two letters, uh, N-E, are a Greek prefix that translates as no or not. And uh, estia means to eat. So literally, this Greek word means no eat, okay? Or not eating. That's what the word literally means, not to eat. That's pretty straightforward. So it, a fast is to abstain from eating, okay? So that's the, the basic word fast. It means to abstain from eating. But here's a, a very important point that many Christians miss. There is a difference between a simple fast that means not eating and a biblical fast. You cannot define a biblical fast as no eat or not eating. A biblical fast has another critical component to it. Now, when it comes to biblical fasting, that food must always be replaced with something else, primarily prayer and time spent in God's word. And so biblical fasting is never so simple as to just skip meals. You do skip meals when it comes to biblical fasting, but the skipping of meals is always replaced by time in God's word and greater times in prayer with him as well. So let's put it like this. If we are skipping meals but aren't praying and reading God's word more, that's not biblical fasting. That's dieting, right? It's not biblical fasting. It's dieting if you're just skipping meals and not doing anything for God in that time you'd normally spend eating. You can pray without fasting, but you can't fast biblically without praying. That last sentence is really important. We've just spent three weeks talking about prayer. You can pray without fasting, but you can't have a biblical fast without praying being an integral part of that biblical fast. 
So this morning, we're not uh, really talking about the health benefits or the risks of fasting. Our focus is not on the physical aspect of fasting. We can save that for another message another time, or you can better yet do some research on that today or sometime this week. There's plenty of information online about the physical benefits and the risks of fasting. Jesus' focus here in these three verses is on the spiritual dimension of fasting. Why we do it, to touch our spiritual selves and grow spiritually and what those benefits are. And so since Jesus focuses on the spiritual aspect of fasting, that'll be our focus in this message as well. Now, question number two, is fasting commanded in the New Testament? That's an important question that many Christians ask. And the quick answer is no. Is it commanded in the New Testament? No. However, it is clearly implied that every follower of Christ will do it. Fasting isn't commanded in the New Testament, but it is assumed. I want you to notice what Jesus says in verses 16 and 17 here in Matthew 6. He doesn't say, if you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites. He doesn't say, if you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Notice he says both times, when you fast. When you fast. In other words, Jesus assumed that you and I, as his followers, would fast at least periodically. Fasting isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So fasting is not commanded, but it is assumed of every follower of Christ in the New Testament. Question number three. What's the point of fasting? A lot of Christians have that question today. So we'll spend a a little bit more time answering that third question. If you do a, a Bible study on fasting, you'll discover that fasting is mentioned dozens of times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned over 20 times in the New Testament. And God's followers fast and pray for a variety of reasons. Uh, Let me give you three quick examples of fasting in the New Testament. Example number one, we can find over in Luke chapter 4, verse 2. Jesus fasted and prayed before he began his public ministry. That's probably the the best-known fast in the entire New Testament. All of us have heard that before, that before Jesus uh, went out and began his ministry, he had just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and right after he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, he bolted for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't he? He went off into the wilderness by himself, just him and God, and he prayed and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And so he fasted and prayed before he began his public ministry. He does this to set us a great example. When we are at a crossroads in our life and are about to begin something new and important, it's a really good idea to spend time fasting and praying. Uh, Before you begin a new job, it's a good idea to fast and pray that God would be with you and and bless you in that job. Uh, Before a student goes off to high school or, or to college for the new school year, I encourage any of you students watching to spend some time fasting and pray before that new school year begins. It's a good idea uh, before you begin serving in a new ministry to fast and pray before you begin that new ministry. Uh, It's a great idea to fast and pray before your wedding day. Uh, That's the most important human relationship in the world, your relationship with the spouse you'll spend the rest of your life with. 
And so by all means, spend some time fasting and praying before that wedding day. It's also a, a good idea to fast and pray before your child is born because uh, that is a child knit together in that child's mother's womb. And so what a wonderful thing before the birth of that child to fast and pray for that child. It's a good idea to fast and pray before these important moments in our lives. Jesus fasted and prayed before he began the most important, vital ministry in the history of the world, his three-and-a-half-year ministry here on earth. And before he did that, he fasted and prayed, and he says to you and me that we should fast and pray as well before the big moments in our lives. Example number two, uh, Jesus urged his disciples to pray and fast for spiritual breakthrough. An example of that is over in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, they tried to drive out a demon and they couldn't do it. And he said to them, this kind can come out only by prayer. And some biblical translations have the words and fasting. This kind, this demon can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. And so this boy had been demon-possessed, and the, the demon had made this boy mute and thrash around on the ground and foam at the mouth, and there were nine of Jesus' disciples that couldn't drive it out. So Jesus tells him, hey, it doesn't matter that there were nine of you. This one could only come out through prayer and fasting. Well, biblical fasting can intensify our prayers to bring about spiritual deliverance when nothing else Works. This is such an important benefit of fasting and prayer. There are times when Christians get caught up in an addiction and their willpower cannot break that addiction. Now, their willpower doesn't work and the self-help methods don't work and the tear-filled pleas of loved ones don't work. Their family comes together and does an intervention and the intervention uh, doesn't work. And even normal prayers don't seem to work. And so oftentimes when nothing else works... We need to do what Jesus told those nine disciples to do. Fast and pray for spiritual breakthrough. It's been proven time and time again. Underlying many physical problems are root spiritual problems. Underlying many psychological problems are root spiritual problems. Underlying many relationship problems are root spiritual problems. Problems And seasons of prayer and fasting can address these root spiritual problems like nothing else can. Oh, it's a great thing to do. When you need spiritual breakthrough, spend some time fasting and praying. Example number three, the church in Antioch prayed and fasted for God's clear guidance and direction right before they sent out Paul and Barnabas onto the mission field. I think that's a remarkable telling example because Paul was the greatest missionary in the history of the world and he was selected and set apart and prepared for ministry through prayer and fasting. So we can draw this conclusion. Fasting and prayer tunes our ears to God's voice and it prepares us to obey his clear guidance and direction. So what's the point of biblical fasting? Well, as we've seen in these three examples, fasting and prayer can focus us and empower us for what's up ahead. Fasting and prayer can usher in spiritual breakthrough when nothing else seems to work. And fasting and prayer can reveal God's guidance and direction. I believe it all boils down to this. Biblical fasting is a necessary part of a radical reorientation 
to God. If you're bold enough to do so right where you're watching this broadcast, I encourage you to say this out loud with me. Biblical fasting is a necessary part of a radical reorientation toward God. I want to suggest to you that everything Jesus has been teaching us so far in Matthew chapter 6 has been with this purpose in mind, to to radically reorient us toward God, to radically reorient our hearts toward God. Uh, Think about it. Why is it a big deal if everybody around me sees how much I put into the offering box? You know, that money still blesses the poor, doesn't it? Well, sure it does. So we ask, what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal because God cares about our hearts more than he cares about any other part of us. And when we give to impress people, it reveals that we are more interested in bringing glory to ourselves than bringing glory to God. And that is the original sin, idolatry. Some ask, why is it a big deal if I show off a little bit in my prayers? I'm still praying to God. He still hears my prayers, doesn't he? What's the big deal if if I get a little uh, attention from people and a few pats on the back when I pray particularly well? Well, God has no interest in being a prop for your PR campaign. He has no interest in you using him as a ploy to get people to think you're all religious and whatnot. He's not into that. Don't use God as a prop. If you want to impress people with your words, do it on your own time. Don't do it in prayer on God's time. God's time is critical. When we go to him, it has to be a focus on him and not a focus on getting attention from others around us who happen to hear that prayer. Well, others ask, why is it a big deal if everyone around me sees that I'm fasting? Is that so bad? Maybe I'm setting a good example for them that they'll fast too. And God says, no. I don't want you to show off. I don't, you don't need to show off about being humble. You don't show people you're humble, do you? You're just humble. You don't need to show your humility. Just be humble. God doesn't want you to show anyone you're humble. Uh, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. See how humble I am. And that aborts our humility, doesn't it? It completely sabotages any humility we may have had. He wants you to subtly Quietly, discreetly, be humble. Question number four. How does biblical fasting radically reorient us to God? Well, last week as I was preparing this message, I read this wonderful little quote from Warren Wearsby that really got my cranks turning. And this is what Wearsby writes. He says, The Pharisees fasted each Monday and Thursday. We see that in Luke eighteen twelve. And did so in such a way that people knew they were fasting. Their purpose, of course, was to win the praise of men. As a result, the Pharisees lost God's blessings. And as I read that and read it again and meditated on it, my crank started to turn. Win, lose. Lose, win. And it's like the light bulb just kind of went off. Here's what I believe God revealed to me in my study and wants me to pass on to you today. Here it is. In order to win something... You also have to lose something. Would you agree with that? In order to win something, you also have to lose something. A few examples. In order to win first place in a race, you have to at the same time lose second and third place. Right? Ever thought of it that way? It's true. If you're going to win first place, you got to lose second and third place. You can't have both, can you? You can't do it. It can't happen. 
Whoever wins a friend loses an enemy. Any man who wins the hand of one woman at the same time loses the hands of every other woman who he no longer has permission to marry because he has won the hand of the one he has chosen, right? You win one, you lose all the others. Whoever wins forgiveness loses unforgiveness. Whoever wins heaven loses hell. If you look at Isaiah chapter 58, God was really laying into the people of Israel in Old Testament times because they were fasting, kind of. They were going without food, but at the same time, they were sinning left and right. And this is what God said in Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 9. He says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, He set to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. So what is God saying? I believe he's saying this. Fasting has always been about giving up something good to gain something that is infinitely better. Let that sink into your mind and heart. Fasting has always been about giving up something good to take hold of something that's infinitely better. Is the food that you eat good? Absolutely it's good. It's a gift from God. There's nothing bad about the food on your table that you choose to fast from. But you give up something good. You lose something good in order to win and gain something that's much better. Amen? That's fasting. Giving up food has never been the end goal. It's just the starting point. As we give up some good food in order to reorient ourselves to God, who is much better and more fulfilling than the greatest meal we've ever eaten, God leads us to give up other good things for what is even better. As we fast from food, God also leads us to fast from injustice and uh, and oppression. He leads us to fast from hoarding our food while others around us go hungry. He leads us to fast from a closet full of clothes when the homeless around us need some of those clothes hanging in our closets unused. In short, as we fast and pray, God helps us take our eyes off of the stuff of this world, off of our things, which are good, to take our eyes off of the things of this world and focus them on something that is infinitely better. First and foremost, our eyes focus on Him. You could say it this way. Food is good, but God is so much better. Amen? Food is good. He's not saying your food's not good. But fasting is putting aside something good to gain something better. Remember that pearl of great price that Jesus told us about in His parable. Oh, the man sold everything he had to buy a single pearl because that single pearl was of greater value than everything else the man owned. And Jesus is that way. Everything that we have piled together is less than the greatness of God. Food is good, but God is so much better. So we fast and pray. 
And when Jesus speaks of our reward, what kind of reward does he have in mind? Is he thinking about mansions in glory? Is he thinking about those mansions up in heaven with piles of gold in each room? Perhaps. But I don't think so. Remember what Jesus has just taught us in the prior verses. He just got through teaching us the Lord's Prayer. So I think when Jesus is speaking of reward that will come our way as we fast and pray, he has the first three requests within the Lord's Prayer in mind. As we pray to God, as we fast and pray and push aside good things to focus on the greatest one, Jesus Christ, and to focus on God, as we focus on hallowing his name, and praying that His kingdom would come in our hearts and in the hearts and lives of those around us, and that His will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I believe Jesus is saying God will give you that wonderful, glorious reward. As you fast and pray and truly in your heart of hearts desire for God to be hallowed and desire for his kingdom to expand and desire for his will to be done and heaven to come to earth and fill this corner of our world, oh, God will answer that prayer. And what greater reward could there be than God answering that prayer, that his will would be done, his kingdom would expand, and his name would be treasured and honored and loved like none other. That is the greatest reward that you and I could ever see as we fast and pray. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching us about fasting. We've only scratched the surface this morning, Lord, of of what we could talk about in regard to this, this wonderful subject. Lord, we just scratched the surface. We haven't even delved into some of those health benefits of fasting. We haven't even delved into, Lord, uh, the examples in the Old Testament of fast that took place. Fast of the entire assembly of believers. An individual fast. We haven't really gotten into the sackcloth and ashes side of things. And I think that's okay, Lord. You've given us what you wanted us to teach, wanted to teach us today. And I pray that you would help us to apply this spiritual discipline to our lives. Lord, you have not said it's okay to give to the poor and to pray, but you don't have to fast. Lord, with each of these three acts of righteousness, you've made it clear that they should be present on a regular basis in the lives of each of your followers. So teach us, O God, how to incorporate fasting into our prayer lives. Lord, I pray that our fasting would supercharge our prayers. And as we take our eyes off of our food and off of our dinner plate and reorient them toward you, I pray, Lord, that you would take our eyes off of all things of this world and reorient all of them toward you as well. Lord, may food be the start of a complete and utter reorientation of our hearts to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are so glad that you joined us in worship today. If you have never made a decision to accept Christ as your Savior and as the Lord of your life, I sure hope and pray you'll do that today. It's not difficult to accept Christ. It's not easy to follow Him, but it's not complicated either. If you're ready to love God with all your heart, to obey His commands, 
and to trust in him every day of your life until he calls you home to heaven. We like to share the ABCs of getting right with God. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior, Jesus Christ. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he's your only way to have a relationship with God. And C, choose to follow him as your Savior and as your Lord beginning today. If you've made that decision, I encourage you, reach out to one of our prayer and decision counselors today. Their numbers are on the bottom of your screen. You can call or text at any time, but please reach out to them. And if you just need prayer today, I encourage you to reach out to them as well. Well, in a moment, we're going to take communion for those of you who are already believers and followers of Christ. But for those of you who don't stay with us for communion, I just want to close out this service by saying thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, moms. I hope you have a wonderful day and that your family dotes on you because it's well-deserved. We love you, moms. We think you're beautiful, and we wouldn't be who we are today without you. You're such a blessing to us, and may God bless you as you continue to make those sacrifices for the good of your family and do God's work right there in your home. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Okay, so we'll get the little impact flash probably.